the first thing I want to do this morning is set the scene for you. So here's how it goes. It's hot. I mean like hot. Think Knoxville in the middle of July, but 10 times that hot, right? You've been walking through the wilderness with a million or so of your closest friends for three months. Now that's three months in the heat during the day. It's freezing cold at night. Because when I say wilderness, the word I really mean is desert. It's the desert. You've been there for three months. You're tired. You don't know where you're going. And all you want to do is get there. But you don't know where there is. And you don't know when you're supposed to be there. And then, and then, you come to the foot of this mountain. That mountain right there. Everyone sets up camp for another cold night. And then in the morning, you hear that your leader, a guy named Moses, has finally heard from God. And God says, in three days, I'm going to come and I'm going to rest on the top of this mountain. So in those three days, you get ceremonially clean. And you know that if you go near the mountain, you're going to be struck dead so you don't go anywhere near it but you get ready. This is it. This is the big time. Here we go. It's like, this is the thing we've been waiting for for all this time ever since we left Egypt. And then, when the three days is up, God does what he said he would do. Can I read it? Let's read it. Exodus 19, 16 through 20. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him, in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Man, the Bible knows how to tell a story. I got like chill bumps listening to that. Oh man, it's so good. Let, before we get going, let's pray together. God, this morning we want to hear from you. Um, <laughs> We want to hear from you through the power of your word, God. You've given us your word, and and this morning, God, what we want to take from it is that your word is exciting, and that your word is powerful, and that your word is truth. So, God, this morning, we ask that you speak in a big way. We ask that you are here with us uh, because we love you, and we're here for you. Um, God, it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, good morning. My name is John Barber. I'm the executive pastor here at Bridge Church, and if you don't know what an executive pastor is, I get that question all the time. If you don't know what that means, it means that Anthony does most of the preaching and I do all of the real work. So all of the other stuff that happens in the background, that's right, Veron knows what's up. All the stuff that happens in the background, that's all my job. I'm kidding, of course. Mostly. Mostly. Um, But what you need to know about Bridge Church is that uh, we're going on a journey together. This year, we're journeying through the entire Bible together in a year. So we kicked off with Genesis 1 at the beginning of the year. 
and we've been walking through the Bible chronologically through the last six weeks. So we've seen a lot so far. We've been through the creation of the world, through Adam and Eve, through the story of Job, the Tower of Babel, Noah, and the flood, the covenant that God made with Abraham. We've seen the creation of the nation of Israel through the descendants of Abraham, guys named Isaac and Jacob. We've seen how Jacob's sons became the 12 tribes of Israel, how they sold Joseph to Egypt, and how that act was what God used to preserve Israel through a famine. Then last week, Anthony looked at how things changed for Israel. They became enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years, and God raised up a guy named Moses, a murderer with a speech impediment, to be their leader and deliverer. We saw how God freed his people from slavery and led them to freedom to wander in the desert. But free, free for what? I mean, sure, God had promised Abraham that they would become a huge nation, but that was 400 years ago. What did that have to do with them? They're in the desert now. They're hungry now. They're thirsty now. They had seen the miracle of the Red Sea parting, and they had seen the miracles of the plagues that God sent on Egypt. But this week, when we catch up with our friends, the Israelites, they've already had enough of the desert. And after just a few months of wandering, they arrive at Mount Sinai, which we saw a second ago. On their journey, God has provided them with manna and quail to eat and water to drink. And now they've arrived, not at the promised land, but here at Mount Sinai. Can we go to a map for a second? Some of you guys are like, oh, no, maps. But when you ask the executive pastor to preach, you get maps. So sorry about that. Um, so this is, this is the Middle East, right? So Israel is in red. This is what the Middle East kind of looks like now. Um, off to the west, you'll see Egypt. But what I really want you to pay, what, what I want you to pay attention to is that little wedge-shaped piece of land in between Egypt and Israel. Daniel, can we zoom in on that for a second? So, okay, so here's our wedge. And if you look, you can see the arrow. The Israelites left Egypt up there at Goshen. It might be hard for you guys to see, but it's there on the left. They crossed the Red Sea and came all the way down. They took about three months to come all the way down to the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula, which is what this wedge is called. And at the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula, there's a mountain. And that mountain is called Mount Sinai. And that's our setting for today. So they've been freed from slavery. They leave Goshen. They cross the Red Sea. They journey for three months. And it's here that God chooses to reveal himself. It's here in the desert that God says, okay, you're ready to hear me now. And this is the part that I read a few minutes ago, right, at the beginning. God, God causes a huge cloud to come down on the mountain and asks for Moses to come up and have a chat, and that's where it all gets crazy. Now, if you're new to bridge or if you haven't been doing your journey reading, that's okay, because I'm going to cover the whole story today, so you won't be behind. I'm not going to leave you in the lurch. Um, but I want to point out a couple of things today. That I want to accomplish a couple of things today. One thing that I want to accomplish is if you think that the Bible is boring, if you think that reading the Bible is boring, I really hope that after today you look at it differently, because this story is better than every single James Bond, 
or Michael Bay or whatever movie put together. So much happens here. I couldn't even cut any of it out. I had to talk about it all because it's so exciting. And then I want to break up a couple of other misconceptions for you today. So we're going to have a good time. And you can pick up our journey reading starting today. In fact, you know what? I'll give you a grace day. Pick up the journey reading starting tomorrow because tomorrow we kick off with the book of Leviticus. It's a great place to start. You can get a journey reading plan back there on the table. So, now Moses is up on the top of the mountain, just him and God together. So do you remember a few chapters before when Moses encounters the burning bush and he hears God's voice come out of this burning bush and God's voice says, Moses, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground? How much more holy is the place they are now? On the top of this mountain with God there. This is one of the few places in the history of the world that God chose to appear to man. Is it any wonder that this part of the world is seen as sacred? Is it any wonder that wars are fought over that little wedge? So why? Why here? Why like this? Well, if we back up a few verses, I think we might see why the God of the universe chooses to bring them here and show up in this way. So let's go back, chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, right before Moses goes up the mountain. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So did you catch it? God reiterates the covenant that he's been making all along. And he tells Moses what the nation of Israel is to him. They are his treasured possession. They are his segula. This is the Hebrew word. Say it with me. Segula. It's a beautiful word. It's a, it's a Hebrew word that's only used in the Bible eight times. Six of those eight times are used like this. God saying that my people are my treasured possession. They're my segula. The other two times this word is used. One is David, King David, talking about his vast storehouses of riches, of wealth. And the other time is Solomon talking about his vast storehouses of wealth. This is what God's people are to him. They are his vast storehouses God sees his people like that, like a vast storehouse full of jewels and gold and riches. They're his treasure. Now, when I say his treasure, there's two parts to that. The first part is the fun part, the treasure part. It's the part we like. Oh, I'm, I'm God's diamond. I'm special. I'm beautiful to him, right? We like that part. The second part is a little harder to swallow, and that's the his part. 
We are his treasure. Like David and Solomon's storehouses of treasure, those of us who call ourselves the people of God are his. We belong to him. These days, we don't actually own very much. I think my house technically belongs to the bank. I know I pay them every month. My phone, I think, belongs to Verizon. My personal information belongs to anybody that'll give me entertainment for five minutes, right? But if we are his treasure, then we are his. So Moses goes up the mountain. And it's here that we get one of the most famous scenes in the whole Bible, and in fact, one of the most famous scenes in all of human history. God gives Moses what we call the Ten Commandments. You guys know this one probably. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you're familiar with the Ten Commandments. Let's, let's list them real quick. Throw them up there. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. Those are the ten. Those are the big ones. I've had them drilled into my head since I was a little kid, and a lot of you have too. But there's one in particular that I want to hone in on this morning. There's one that there's a lot of misconceptions about. I think we're all pretty clear that we're not supposed to murder and steal and commit adultery. Those are the easy ones. Those are clear. All the kids in the room right now are going, please don't talk about honor your father and mother. Please don't talk about honor your father and mother. It's okay. I'm not going to. It's okay. I'm going to. No, I want to park on number three. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. To be more complete, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes him in vain. And to a young kid growing up in Sunday school, this commandment meant one thing and one thing only, and some of you will you'll identify with this. The cardinal sin was saying God's name before a cuss word. You were better off, you were vastly better off to drop an expletive than you were to put God's name before it. But if I may, can I suggest for a second that this commandment means so much more than that? Because believe it or not, one of the ten most important laws in the history of the world is about more than just my vocabulary. Now, don't get me wrong. Watch your mouth, kids. That's still part of this. Like, don't leave here saying, Pastor John gave me a pass, right? No, no, no. It's still wrong, and you know it. Um, so there's a whole lot in that one word, take, to take the name of the Lord in vain. There is in English, too, right? I can take something from your hand. I can take a hit, maybe. I can take first place in a competition. I can take the bus. I can take pleasure in something. Merriam-Webster has 33 different definitions for the word take. Well, the Hebrew here, the word nasa, isn't quite so complicated. It's used a few different ways through Scripture, but predominantly it's used to mean to take up or to bear. In fact, it's used in the passage I quoted earlier, Exodus 19.4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. How I nassad you on eagles' wings. 
You see, when we take the Lord's name, it doesn't just mean we're speaking it. It means we're bearing it. We're carrying it. We're taking it on as part of ourselves. Now, this is fun. God gives us a very, very literal picture of this just a few chapters later. When he's explaining all the specifications of the tabernacle to Moses, he goes in depth on the priestly garments. All these very, very specific things that I unfortunately don't have time to talk about today. I wish I could. The breastplate of judgment with the precious stones that symbolize the tribes of Israel. The ephod and the gold bells and so on and so on. And then check this out in Exodus 28, 36 through 38. The Lord is telling Moses how to make the garment for the high priest. And he says, You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So here's Aaron. And I don't know if you can see it, but right on his forehead there's a gold plate. And on that gold plate it literally says, Holy to the Lord. It says, holy, H-O-L-Y, belonging to Yahweh. It might as well say, God's treasured possession. When we take the Lord's name, forget about the vain part. When we take the Lord's name, we're taking it on. It's like we're wearing it on our foreheads. It means we're saying, I am his. I am one of his people. When I take the Lord's name, I'm claiming to be his When I take the Lord's name in a good way, it means I'm representing him well. But when I take it in vain, it means I'm doing the opposite. It means I'm saying that my association with God means nothing. So yeah, watch your cuss words. (laughs) But this is so much more. This commandment changes everything about how you live your life. Everything. When you call yourself a Christian, but you slander other people on Facebook, it's taking the Lord's name in vain. When everybody in the office knows you go to church, but then you go gorge yourself on the snacks in the break room, yeah, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. When you leave here on Sunday and go to lunch and you don't tip your server, you're taking the Lord's name in vain. When someone approaches you with a problem and and they're met with harshness and condemnation instead of tenderness and affection, you're taking the Lord's name in vain. Don't you see what this whole passage is about? The Exodus, Sinai, the Ten Commandments, all of it, they're all about God saying, these people are mine. And here's how you show the world that I am yours. Moses was in the very presence of God, whatever that looked like. We don't really know. We do know that later in chapter 34, when he goes back up to get the replacement tablets, he comes back down shining so brightly that he has to wear a veil to avoid freaking everybody out. Um, But after Moses gets the Ten Commandments from God, you know what happens next? That's right, he gets lots and lots more laws, lots. 
We don't talk about these too much, but there's a lot of them. Laws about slaves, laws about the Sabbath, laws about festivals, laws about what to do when someone's ox falls into a hole that you dug. Things like that. And then he says, oh boy, this is a good part. Then he says, oh, by the way, I want to come live with you. Now, we could do an eight-week study on the tabernacle easy. There's so much here. From chapter 25 through 31, Moses gets detailed plans for the temporary home that God wants the Israelites to build for him. And when I say detailed, I mean detailed. Check this out. I'm not going to put it on the screen. It's okay. This is chapter 26. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame, and a cubit and a, and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, twenty frames for the south side, and forty bases of silver. You shall make under the twenty frames, two bases under one frame, and its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle in the north, twenty frames, and there forty bases of silver, and so on, and so on, and so on and so on. And those are just the walls. <laughs> God spends about twice as long as he did on laws telling them how to build the tabernacle. I know it's a weird word, tabernacle. We don't use it for anything in English, but it just means dwelling place or house. The tabernacle is literally just God's house among the people. That's what he wants them to build. It's his house on earth. And the crazy part here is that the Israelites aren't even in the promised land. They don't even have a permanent home yet. They're wandering through the wilderness, and spoiler alert, they will be for another 38 or 39 years still. But God says, build me a house. He says, I want to be with you. You are mine. I am yours. And I want to be with you. Gosh, I wish we had time to go into the details on this thing, because it's not just a tent we're talking about here. It's an elaborate construction with multiple chambers and specific items. The golden lampstand, the table of showbread, the bronze laver, the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, the one from Indiana Jones, that Ark of the Covenant. All of it. So why was God so picky? Why was he so specific about the design of this thing? Three reasons. The first one is simple. The Israelites were mobile. They were wandering. They wouldn't be in this location for much longer at all. And so the tabernacle had to be mobile too. Did you catch it? In the bit I read a second ago, I know it was reading fast. The frames were made in sections, poles fitting through rings that fit together on bases. It's, it's kind of like, I don't know if you guys probably never even noticed these things, but it's kind of like poles fitting on bases. Where's my base? with sections. It's like this. This is what the walls of the tabernacle looked like, only a lot more elaborate. And God was planning for them to be able to move the thing, being God's people and being mobile. It kind of reminds me of something. I can't quite put my finger on it. Being able to set up at a moment's notice, keeping all of the equipment and items of worship easily accessible so you can move them to a different place if you need to. No? Just me? Am I the only one? Just me? Yeah. It's funny, I was reading this, and that connection didn't occur to me till, till the very end. Nobody is better equipped to understand the travels of the Israelites than a church plant. So that's the first reason. It needed to be mobile. The second reason, well, the Israelites, they had no idea how to worship. 
They'd been in, Israel, in Egypt for 400 years. They'd never really done it before, not in their own way. Pharaoh wouldn't let them go even to offer sacrifices to God. So this was the first time they'd been on their own and they didn't know what they were doing. So God is specific, not only in the construction of the tabernacle, but also in the priestly garments. You saw that a second ago. And of the high priest, in the method of worship, what kind of offerings they should bring, when they should bring them, all of it. The third reason is pretty simple too. Why was God so specific in how to build the tabernacle? I mean, wouldn't you be? was his house. This was his home. When you're building a home, you want to use the best, the best realtors, the best craftsmen, the best everything. You want it perfectly suited for you, for your family, for your interest, all those things. So that's what God does. He hires the best. He and Moses are up there on Mount Sinai, and God says, hey, Moses, do you know those two guys? Their names are Oholiab and Bezalel. I want them to build this thing. Exodus 31, the Lord says to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed him with a holy ab, the son of Ahizamach of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded of you, the tent of meeting and the ark of testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and the stand and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron and the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place according to all I have commanded you they shall do. God puts the artists and the craftsmen in charge. What he wants is perfect. So he puts the perfect people in place, people that he's already bestowed with talents and abilities just so they'd be here at this moment to build his home. So that's it. God says to Moses, here are my Ten Commandments. Here are the rest of the laws. Here's how I want my tabernacle built. Now go down and tell everybody. And then here's where the narrative switches a little bit. You know how when you're watching TV or a movie or something and you're, you're watching the story and then all of a sudden you get like the record scratch and it goes, meanwhile, back at the whatever, back at the ranch. Uh, that's what happens here, right? The perspective switches. We get a, meanwhile, back at the foot of the mountain. The Israelites are getting restless. They know that God has been up there a, a long time with Moses and they don't know what's happened he could have fallen down. He could have abandoned them. They don't know. All they know is they've been down here for 40 days now, and they've heard nothing from Moses other than some rumblings of thunder from the crowd. So they do what any of us would do in that circumstance. They come to Aaron, who's the de facto leader with Moses gone, and they say, we need a God. And we need one now. We don't know if Moses has left us. We don't know, but we're stuck here all alone. Make us a God. And Aaron, being the stout man of character that he is, says, that's ridiculous. Of course I'm not going to do that. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's not what happens at all, by the way. Instead, Aaron, God's chosen high priest, says, all right. 
He tells them to gather up all their gold. He melts it down and fashions for them a golden calf and says, here's your God, the one that delivered you from Egypt. They offer sacrifices to it, and they have a festival. Now, I don't know if you were paying attention earlier, but the number two commandment on the list was literally this thing. Don't make an idol out of an animal and worship it. But two things in their defense. They're knuckleheads, but two things in their defense here. Okay, the first is they haven't actually heard the Ten Commandments yet. Moses is still up there, right? So they haven't heard them yet. But come on. (laughs) And number two, this is interesting. They aren't actually making an idol to another god here. They aren't saying, Behold, our cow god. We shall all wear ceremonial udders to celebrate our cow god. That's not what's going on. They're, they're just doing the thing they learned in Egypt. You can't see a god, so you make a physical representation of it, usually an animal. They aren't worshiping a false god here. To them, this is still Yahweh. Verse 5, chapter 32. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. That word Lord there, that's Yahweh. That's the personal name for our God. That's the name God told to Moses around the burning bush when Moses said, Who shall I say you are? Yahweh. So there are two defenses for the dumb Israelites, but they're still dumb. And we know this because the next thing that happens is we go back up to the top of the mountain and God says, wait, Moses, before you go down, you need to know what the Israelites are, are, are doing. You need to know what you're walking into. So check this out. The Lord said to Moses, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. He tells Moses, Moses, don't go anywhere yet, because I'm going to burn them all up and start over with you. (laughs) But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power, with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Notice what God says here. He says, go down, Moses, go down for your people. All of a sudden, they're Moses' people? What happened to Segulah? God says, I'm going to destroy them and start over with you. And Moses, sounding very much like Abraham defending Sodom, says, God, these are your people. Sure, they're stiff-necked and a pain, but you didn't bring them out of Egypt just to kill them now. Remember your promises. And he does. So now Moses, ticked off that he has to deal with this, goes down the mountain, Ten Commandments in hand, 
sees what's going on. The first thing he does is he smashes the stone tablets. And he takes the golden calf, (laughs) melts it down, grinds it into a powder, and makes the people drink it. Then he says, priests, come to me. And all the Levites come to Moses. And he says, grab your swords and start chopping. And so the Levites, the priests, kill 3,000 men that day to repay Israel for what they've done. Moses goes back up the mountain, repents on behalf of the nation, gets two replacement tablets, and gets the last command from God. It's almost time to leave. It's time to get moving again. Moses goes back down the mountain. They build the tabernacle exactly according to God's specifications. And the book of Exodus ends like this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. That's how the book of Exodus ends. And from then on out, it's totally smooth sailing for Israel. No problems. No, no, that's not at all how it happens. Guys, we're only two books into the story. So what? Okay, John, this is a crazy story. So much happened. I feel like I need a scorecard. Bottom line this for me. Number one, sometimes God sends you through the wilderness. Notice I didn't say sometimes God sends you into the wilderness. Sometimes God sends you through the wilderness. But he prepares you and he's with you. Maybe you feel like you're there right now. Maybe you feel like you're stuck. Like you're in between things. Like you don't know what God has planned for you. Or... Maybe you don't even know where you'll be in a year. You're in the desert. Well, God sends you into the desert to get you ready for something. For the Israelites, they didn't know how to live. They didn't know how to be a people. God had to take them into the desert to prepare them. He had to impart rules for them to live by. But here's the good thing. He prepares you for the journey, and he's with you as you go, just like he did for them. And maybe you feel like you're there. Maybe you feel parched. Maybe you feel neglected, but God didn't send you into this place alone or unarmed. I skipped a little detail earlier about the golden calf story that I think is really interesting. Did you wonder, like I did when I was reading it, where all the gold came from? Like, Why do they have all this gold? They've been slaves for 400 years. And then I remembered what happened right before they were freed from Egypt, right after the Passover. Check this out. Chapter 12, verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. The Egyptians were like, get out of here before God kills us all. 
So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. On their way out the door, they asked the Egyptians, hey, are you going to use that stuff, all that jewelry you have over there? Can we have it? And the Egyptians were like, we don't care. Just take it and go. Whatever it takes to get you out the door. The Lord softened their hearts. But the Lord did not give the Israelites all of that treasure to melt down into a cow. He gave them that treasure to make his home. Chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me, and this is the contribution you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat hair, tan ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, onyx stones, stones for setting in the ephod and the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God prepared them for their journey. He gave them everything they needed. And when it came time to build the tabernacle, they wasted their gifts on an idol. They wasted their gifts on nonsense instead of his good thing. If you're in the desert, know that God has given you what you need too. Maybe... Maybe it's your church family. Maybe the thing that he's given you is your church family. And are you squandering it? Do you show up here at like 10.05 on Sunday morning and then bolt as soon as service is over? Are you in a community group? Are you dying on the vine because you don't know what to do, but God has provided groups of people who can help you out of the wilderness? Are you stuck because you're ashamed of where you are? Well, community groups are the places where you don't have to be ashamed, where you can find friendship and guidance. We've currently got two community groups here at Bridge. I lead one, Anthony leads the other, and they're great. Just this past Friday, we sat around the Edzema's house, we ate soup, we talked about our lives together, they're there for you. If you want to know more about community groups, fill out the bottom of your worship program, check the community groups box, stick it in the box at the back, and we'll get back to you. God prepares you for the desert, and he gives you what you need to get out. So what, number two? Don't bear the Lord's name in vain. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. If you choose to take it, take it well. Instead of being the stiff-necked Israelites who abandon their faith at the first sight of the unknown, be Bezalel and Aholiab, who use their God-given talents and abilities to build the kingdom of God here on earth. Are you bearing God's name well? Are you using the things God has given you well, your time, your talents, your finances. When people look at you, do they see him or do they see a hypocrite? 
1,500 years later, Peter would say it this way. 1 Peter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you might grow up into salvation. Indeed, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Jump into verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I don't know if those words sounded familiar to you, but they may. Because back in Exodus 19, I don't know, Daniel, if you can find that one. Exodus 19, 1 through 6. I'm going to jump back there real quick at the beginning because it's so good. Starting with verse 4, you, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Peter 1,500 years later, when he sits down to write 1 Peter, is writing to Christians. And he says, just like the Lord said way back in Exodus, it's still true. And so if you are coming to church and you're thinking, great, these are great stories about the nation of Israel, but what in the world does that have to do with me Peter says it has everything to do with you because the promise is true for you too. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. If you call Christ yours, that is you. You are God's people. And that means you need to live like it. It means you need to bear his name well, not in vain. So what, number three? You are God's treasured possession. <laughs> his segula. For those of you that have surrendered your lives to Christ, you are his treasure. You are his beloved you are his. He dotes on you. He cares for you. He fathers you. He loves you. He sacrifices for you. He loves you. He loves you. Can I say it one more time? He loves you. It's so hard to believe that but it's so true, and God wrote a whole book about how it's true. He loves you. And just like with the Israelites, he wants to be with you. Thanks be to God we don't have a built a tabernacle for God to come down and dwell with us. He did it again in a much more profound and important way 
Because you see, about 2,000 years ago, there lived a man named Jesus. And the most important thing that I can tell you about Jesus is that he is God in the flesh. He came and lived with us. And now, his Holy Spirit lives inside his people. Don't believe me? Check out 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You are a treasured possession. He loves you. Let's pray. Father, oh, I love your word so much. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for wanting to be with us, God. Even though, just like the Israelites, we are stiff-necked, we are proud. God, we ask this morning that you help us. We ask that you help us not bear your name in vain. For those of us that call ourselves believers, God, we ask that you help us to bear your name well. God, we ask that you are among us and you empower us and you give us the strength and the grace when we go out of here. When people see us, they see you. Because, God, that's what we want. We want people to see you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for calling us your treasure. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.